Hey everybody, this is Dave Broadback. I'm coming to you live. Well, it's live right now. It's recorded for you. But coming to you uh, from what I have often called my podcast studio, which is actually uh, my daughter's bedroom, old bedroom. Anyway, uh, the lecture you're about to hear is for Psychology 3196, Human Evolutionary Psychology. So let's talk about cognition. Let's talk. It's cognition, pretty basic thing. Well, you know, you describe when you define psychology, you say it's the scientific study of behavior and cognition. So this is a sensible, pretty important thing to talk about. So we're talking about thinking. Cognition just means thinking. I know there's a few biology students in the class, more than a few. Uh, you may not have taken anything a whole lot beyond you for a psych, and you should know it just means thinking. Um, it involves things like problem solving, memory, categorization, that kind of Anybody here taking cognition from Lori Bloomfield? So, I mean, that's basically, except for the memory part, which she doesn't spend a great deal of time on, this is a course called memory that I teach. Uh, it's mostly about things like problem solving, categorization, that kind of thing, right? Okay. So let's talk a bit about categorization. This is something humans are very good at. In fact, we're so good at it that it's almost a detriment. We over-categorize a lot of times. We see patterns that aren't there. This is why, for example, people believe there is a face on Mars. Because they see something in a face detection system that was a face, and it's not a face. No face. This is something humans are very good at. Okay? We're just good at this. And a lot of animals are, too, not just us. It's just something that we are good at. We, we know we're good at it because of self-reflection, but also there's a lot of data suggesting this. So typicality is a pretty important thing in categorizing something. So when you call something a bird, if I ask you, is a robin a bird, you respond more quickly than if I ask you if a penguin is a bird. By the way, no one gets these things wrong. But a, is a robin a bird is responded to more quickly, yes, than is a penguin a bird. Because robins hold more characteristics with the concept of bird in common than penguins do. Penguins don't fly. Right? We tend to think of birds as being somewhat small, penguins taller. Penguins live in the Antarctic, nothing else lives there. It's crazy. Penguins, penguins, though there are penguins who live, live all the way at the Galapagos Islands in the equator. So, I mean, most penguins also live in the far south. Yes? And, of course, zoos. Zoos. So, we tend to think, or, or, or even ostrich, though. Ostriches don't fly. So, it takes longer to respond as an ostrich bird than is a, is a robin a bird. Robin is sort of our canary, or sort of these prototypical birds. Almost a sort of platonic state of birdness, or of course, as I, I, birdosity or birdaciousness. I made both of those last ones up. Birdness is probably also not a word. I'm today making up words. So, a penguin is less bird-like than a robin. A dolphin is less mammalish than a dog. Is that made up? Yeah, I believe that's made up. Shares more mammalosity with the. Super category mammal 
than 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 dolphin. Now, some people do get that one wrong because there are people who believe dolphins are fish, and those people are bankrupt. But they were paying attention in like Greek too, and they were had your mind blown. Told it was a man. Mind blown. All right. So it takes a lot longer. Uh, dog is a great example of mammal. Uh, another group is cows. Pretty quick, right? That dog and cow probably respond to about equally. And this is all done with reaction time. And you measure this in like at the most tens of seconds. People get don't get these wrong. But it shows that we are 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 how our cognitive architecture is structured. One of the cool things about this is. It fits in with how stuff has evolved. This is a really nice study. Uh, Boster and D'Andrade, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, Yacht 89, and the book that talks about this, had, had experts, non-experts, and local tribes people in, and this is in um, Pacific Islanders, okay? Had them, I think, was it Pacific Islanders South American people? What's that? Where? I thought it was, it was Pacific Islands. Islands. But I'm probably thinking about something else. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I different things. Yeah, I was thinking about Samoans. Samoans are Pacific Islanders. Um, had them classify birds. And the cool thing is, non-experts, so that's everybody here, unless you're an expert in tropical birds. Anybody? No, no, no. Not too much, maybe a little, right? Uh, <laughs> then... Non-experts, that's us. Experts, so biologists who study these things. And the local people who have actual contact with them have them classify these birds. Just put them in categories. And the cool thing is everybody agrees on these things. So our semantic, what's called semantic memory, or semantic network system does this. It actually categorizes what we want to call natural categories based on things that evolution has selected for, which is really cool. Uh, that just, to me, it's, that's kind of mind-boggling. So it's a semantic network, right? A semantic network is just the idea that you have, like, bird, and then it shares character- there are characteristics of birds. Birds fly, right? Uh, birds have feathers. Birds have wings. Birds lay eggs. Birds have beaks. So it's a network of ideas connected to another one. Okay? This is something you probably ran into in intro. If you took memory with me, you ran into this. I'll get your glory Questions about that? You see how it's organized? How it works is exceedingly complicated. And uh, take memory with me next year. <laughs> it's very complicated. It's cool as hell, but it's complicated. So natural categories are something we're very good at. So is this a bird? Is it a plane? That's right. I was going to say a plane or Superman. Both of those things are not natural categories. Anyone? Bird, plane, Superman. Anyway, so point is, we should be good at natural categories, and we are. Also, so are other animals. So Kernstein, who was brilliant and then wrote a horrible book called The Bell Curve five years later, but the important thing about Kernstein is this idea... That he had pigeons looking at slides. Now you would use a computer touchscreen, but this was in the 70s. Looking at slides of um, trees, 
versus non-trees. So natural trees and not trees. And birds were really good at these birds, these pigeons, these lab pigeons. We're very good at determining, oh, that's a pigeon. Oh, sorry, that's a bird. That's that. That's a tree. That's a non-tree. Um, also, the fish, other birds, they were good at those things. The neat thing is you don't have to use natural categories. We categorize things, and when I say we, I mean the animals, but we can talk about humans for sure. Even man-made, so unnatural, non-natural categories are pretty good. I've trained, I've trained pigeons in a paper, well, not in a paper, I did it in a, in, a, in a lab, and then it was written up in a paper, but, thank you, um, to, it was cats and cars. Dave? Yeah. How do you do that? Uh, you show the pigeons over and over pictures of cats, and then they peck at the cat, they get they get food. If they peck at the car, they don't get food. They get a timeout. And then you do that with hundreds of slides, and then you show them pictures of a cat that they've never seen before, and if they get it right, they get food. So you can test the So you switch the picture. You yeah, you, you don't just have them, because they'll, they'll memorize them. That's what I was thinking. And then did, I guess you did the same, you would do the same thing with the trees. Yeah. Cool. You give a pigeon a timeout. <laughs> uh, lights, lights go out okay. in, in the box, and uh, so they don't, they, there's nothing to do, and there's no food. So it goes up like 30 seconds, they can't do anything. 30 seconds, they're not doing it, just standing in the dark. It's no fun for anyone. I was just curious. Okay. No, it's a good question. Uh, I wasn't doing that for the sake of categorizing, I was doing it as a, as a tool to do something else. But the point is, it's totally doable. Um, we can even do complicated things like I can keep showing the shapes, okay? And then, and I don't even tell you what the category, and I just, if you get it right, I go, yep, we get it wrong, and people, but I still, people, is they'll work for yes. Or they'll work for a, or a little ping on the computer monitor. It's really easy. So you show people these shapes over and over again, and let's say I'm saying, the category I'm making up is three to seven-sided objects that are red and or blue. Let's pick some shit out of the air. Right? And then I show you, you know what? You'll learn it, and I, you can't even articulate it. <coughs> Eventually you can. But when you start getting it right, you can't tell me what the category is. You can say all things, oh, it's red things. Uh, red, okay, and blue things. And they have to have sides, but not too many sides, but not, not you know. Eventually you'll go red and or blue things that have between three and seven sides. You'll, you'll be good at that. But the funny thing is you start responding properly even before you can tell me. So it tells us that this is this unconscious cognition that I've talked about, that the idea we talk about consciousness, that a lot, most of our cognition is impenetrable to consciousness. Why is this interesting to us? Because we can think about stereotypes, right? Immediately you think of like, okay, uh, what's a good one? Uh, women are better at childcare than men. That's stereotype. Certainly. Or, what's another classic? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, women are better than men at verbal tasks. Right. Okay. Or, men are more aggressive than women. Get more fights. Okay. So, those are stereotypes. That's us make you know, the funny thing is, what if, those all actually sound like they might be true. Yeah, not, not, not all stereotypes are true. In fact, a lot of them are horrible. 
But some of them, interestingly, have a grain of truth in them, right? It's, it's from us categorizing. No, of course not. All stereotypes are wrong. Everybody's equal. Everybody's exactly the same. Everyone's exactly the same. All people are exactly the same. Don't even say anything different or you are horrible. Says the guy wearing a feminist shirt. So, actually, no. No, you know. Actually, the interesting thing is with things that are really true, like, okay, here we go. You know, what? how many standard deviation units do you think women are better than men at verbal tasks? And I'll ask the class. Okay, a quarter. A quarter of a standard deviation. Who says it's a quarter? On average, not individual men. Okay, who says it's 0.5? So one person with a quarter. Who says it's 0.5? What? Sorry. Yeah. I feel like that's very difficult to, 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 to say, you know. On average, because, you can say each, woman, each woman is different. No, I know that. I'm talking about groups of women and groups of men. Uh, I would say randomly select. I would say there's a difference, but I wouldn't say I don't know if you could measure that. You can. No, that's the thing. Like I mean, there are data like crazy. You can measure that. Oh, yeah. Sure. Overall, well, what about what about the variances among women in the group? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and the variance in the men in the group. <coughs> well, we can look at the two averages and say how far apart they are. So, who here thinks it's a quarter of a, a standard deviation? Oh, it's more yeah. than two. Who here thinks it's a half a standard deviation? I would say half. Okay, I just got a couple people saying half. Who here thinks it's one standard deviation? It actually is one. And it's, in, it, it's interesting. And by the way, the spatial superior for men goes the other way. It's one standard deviation. Which is a sort of everybody's, everybody's happy. My mom's better than my dad. Yeah, but you know what? Your mom isn't a group of women, and my your dad's not a group of men. So the interesting thing about this is that usually we underestimate these things, except obviously in this class where you've got it on. Um, oh, here's a, here's a fun one. Um, if you're really, really, really tall, and I mean seven feet or taller, I don't know how many meters and inches that is, or meters and inches. Yeah, let's just mix up systems. It's twenty-one. It is in 21 meters. That's, that's 65 feet tall. That's by three is because like it's three feet per meter. Anyway, it, it's ish. It's, anyway, it doesn't matter. If you're seven feet tall, what what do you think the probability is of you playing in the NBA? If you're in North, if you live in North America, you actually play in the National Basketball Association, professional basketball. Less than one percent. Yeah. Less than one percent. That's a good guess. What else? I don't know. I want to say it's a little higher. I'm gonna, if it's price is right, I'm going 5%. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, yeah, because you got a low, right? So you got more chance of winning a brand new call. Or if it's a Canadian version. Because, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of variables involved with that, though. Actually, it's interesting there's not. It's, it's the probability of if you're seven feet taller or higher, the probability of you actually playing in the NBA is 16%. 16% of all seven-footers men who are... Live in the United States or Canada, play in the National Basketball Association. That was my point of the higher your height, the more athleticism you have. Well, seven feet or tall. How many people are seven feet or tall? It's a small number. It's a it's a very small number. And in fact, if you did the math, there's probably let's say there's what thirty teams, thirty or thirty-two teams in the NBA. Let's say it's thirty to make math easy. And let's say there's one and a half or a little more than one seven footer on each team. So that's probably fifty people. So if that's sixty percent. Few hundred. Okay, for the sake of the argument, though, how many people are actually seven feet in Canada? 
It's a very small room. It's probably it's probably six or eight people. So with that being said, their odds are just increased just from being seven feet. Yeah, of course. But I'm I'm saying, what about people that are six foot five yes. higher? Which there's more of them. Yes, of course. Assume. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yes. So you can walk around the university and find some people. Sure. No, what I'm saying is we are underestimating something because we think of things like what about all these other variables? But in fact, it turns out that, like I said, 16% of people, there's a great article on 538.com, it's a website, it's get to spell it out, 538, about statistics. Uh, it's a great, it's about statistics and politics and sports. It's one of it's like all the things I like. Uh, and uh, talking about this actual very thing a few years ago. It's pretty fascinating, right? Um, so it depends on how you use a stereotype, right? So we want to think of, you never want to think of individuals, you always think of groups. Right? So men are more likely to be violent than women. Cross cultural too. But you don't say the man is more violent, this man X is more violent than woman Y. That's the point, and that's the subtle thing that's lost on a lot of people. And that's basically just based on us categorizing things. Um, right, so that's been a bit on categorization. Now, thinking about memory, in a moment-by-moment basis, we run into a lot of stuff. We have to try to remember it. We encode it. And we actually have to not remember a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff we have to ignore. We should be very efficient with what we do. We don't remember it all. In fact, we don't even store most of the stuff that we encounter. So most of what we process is going to be forgotten. Most of what we process is going to be forgotten. And in fact, might not have ever not be forgotten, just never ever stored in the first place. Right? Like today, for example, the exact words I use are unimportant. Right? The concepts are important, but the exact words I use are unimportant. What color my pants are today is completely useless to remember. This is one of the things kids do, right? Little kids will remember completely unimportant details of things. Right? One of the first memories I have, literally, that I that is invented at all, besides something that's huge, like my brother being <coughs> things like that, is when I was like a little over two and my mom took me uh, to the Churchill Plaza Library. Is it even still there? No, it's still there. Is it? No. There's one in the back Oh, maybe. I think it's fine. But there was a library here. Because I lived here until 1967. And my mom took me there for story time. And I remembered not the story, I remember nothing else but the color of the walls. They were yellow. I remember that. And in fact, when we moved here in 1996, I remember walking, I, we took from taking Maddie to the library, something to do, you know, we just moved here. And I said, just a second before we walk in, the walls of here are going to be yellow. Unless they painted them since 1967. Walked in, they were yellow. I don't know what color they were when they were when it was back here. That's useless. Why remember that? Doesn't matter. It's a stupid detail. Right? So kids do that. Whereas you get older, you learn how to process things efficiently. Um, Dave, yes, please. Does that then have an impact on how observant we are? Like how some people they don't necessarily change and they can still be super observant. Like I had a 
camp one time and we played detective. We had to someone goes behind a, a tree, yeah, takes yeah. off a sock or something, and then we have to see what we have to guess what. What's different? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, does that mean that the older you get, the less observing you are? Well, like, it's not just being observant, right? It's about knowing what's important. So in that case, the task itself demands that you pay attention to a lot of things. But typical day-to-day memory doesn't involve that, and it shouldn't, because there's so much other information out there, it shouldn't matter, right? So it doesn't matter. One of, one of the hard things is, and we don't teach this to anybody, mm-hmm. we just do it. So is there something to be said about those people who just happen to remember the, the trivial things? Oh, I mean, I don't know if there's something to be said, per se. I think it's more that... Most of us kind of grow out of this, and this notion that it would be great to have a photographic memory is completely and utterly ridiculous. Because why do you want that? What you want is to be able to remember concepts that you've learned. Right, and that's not just in school. I mean, in general, things like in the morning, wear pants. I mean, it's just something to do. Uh, That's what you ought to do. I encourage all of you to wear pants. Um, So I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to be controversial. I think people should wear pants. But... Be here wearing a skirt, I guess stupid, right? <laughs> so, looking around. Okay, but the point is that we, 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 we learn to remember the important stuff and we learn to basically we learn to learn. I learned Rebecca. All right. Make sense? Dave? Yes. Where does um, people that have special, they special, like people have autism with a special yeah. ability to remember things that are just beyond our capability? Well, I think a lot of times what happens there is they're remembering irrelevant information. Irrelevant? Yeah, it's irrelevant. Like, when I ask my son, I could call John right now and say, what was the date of your last dental appointment? And he'll know, and I could look it up and it's correct. But it's irrelevant, because I can write that down. It's more relevant if he remembers, did I have a cavity or Right? Uh, or, so a lot of those kind of things, they're basically irrelevant things. They are, they, it's, it's a neat trick, it's a parlor trick. Um, my memory works like that. That Facebook on this day thing, I don't actually need that. <laughs> I know things that happen each day. It's really no fun living with me. I learned after about 15 years of marriage to stop saying to my wife, do you know what we were doing eight years ago today? Because uh, it's, no, it's annoying as hell. Some people in the scientific community think, though, that uh, this is like an evolution of, uh, of human beings, the ability to, is that false? Who? Based on that. Who thinks that? I've read, I read uh, scientific articles saying that autism is like the next uh, step in, into us progressing. Uh, progressing to what? There's no goal. Remember, there's no goal, Theo. There's no goal. We don't, it's not about progress. It's about reproductive success. And you have to remember that we can't know what the goal is. Therefore, and what's the reproductive success of people with autism? It's lower than people without autism. I, I, I'm not, I don't a cite for that. I guarantee you that's Because most people don't find people with autism that attractive because they're weird. I have an autistic son. He's weird. I mean, he laughs when I tell him he's weird. But but he's weird. He's off a little bit. There's just something a little bit off about him, you know. That boy ain't right. Uh, he's Bobby Hill. <laughs> I've always thought Bobby Hill had a touch of something, right? Have you smelled today's garbage? Right, yes, that's a great line from Bobby Hill. The very first episode. It smells even better than yesterday's garbage. 
So I don't... You got to remember there's no rule. Um, so let's talk... Any other question? Okay. So quickly, because a lot of you heard these stories before, I'll talk a little bit about birds because it's what I do. So food story birds. Um, so there's some people like my buddy Rob, Bob Hampton, uh, my PhD advisor, Sarah Shuttleworth, Baron John Krebs, Lord of Whiteham Wood. He's a Sir John Krebs, yeah, he's a, he's a lord and a baron and a knight. Like he was knighted by the queen? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. First time I emailed him was, if you know who? Anthony Hopkins. Sir. No, I don't think they all hang out together. I mean, but he is in the British House of Lords. Krebs, I What do you get knighted for? What do you get knighted for? For being a kick-ass scientist? Oh, right <laughs> Um... And I emailed him once after 20 years. I hadn't talked to him. It's like, how, what's the etiquette? How do you email a knight? I don't know. So, and also, he's the principal of Jesus College at Oxford. So his Jesus, yeah. So his email address is principal at Jesus. Thought you know. It's like, um, so I just emailed and it started with, "Hey John," <laughs> and it worked out. Hi Dave. So it was fine. Um, and that's a black cat chickadee. They store food, and that's a Clark's Nutcracker. They store food. Oh, and that's Dave Sherry in his lab group a few years ago. Um, who's another uh, important uh, person in this story. Uh, Dave's actually my daughter's PhD advisor. So, okay. Putting cognition and evolution together, Anderson and Krebs, that's that guy. You ever heard of the Krebs cycle? Yeah. 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 That's his son. Yeah. His father won a Nobel Prize, and he goes into the same thing. Yeah. Because I once said to John, I said, right. my dad did back to back. One Nobel Prize, I wouldn't have gone into biology myself. I wanted the NASCAR. You know, something totally different. So Anderson and Krebs come up with this model saying that the only way food storing will evolve, because birds store food and recover it later, is if they recover their own seeds. Because it can't work any other way, because if, if, think about this. If you're all storing seeds because it's everybody's going to be communal and it's a great socialist paradise, what if I cheat and don't store food? Then I get all the food back that you're storing, except I don't have to go out finding food. I mean, you lose, ha, ha, ha. And evolution's mean. Nature's red in tooth and claw. So they had this mathematical model that said it only can evolve if you recover your own seeds, okay? So Dave Sherry, you saw that, that's that guy, last guy I showed you. Um, what Sherry, Avery, and Stevens did is they had the birds, uh, these are marsh tits, which are just like chickens, except they live in Britain. They, they, I often wonder if they're the same species. They even have the same call and scent and song. They look the same. Um, so they store, they, they store food, and they took these pine nuts and... Um, radioactively labeled them. So they had the birds store these seeds and then they radioactively labeled so they could find where they were. And they moved some of the seeds. The ones that were moved didn't get recovered. So in other words, they're recovering their own seeds. And this is only like a meter away. A meter away? Yeah, but a meter away. They're moving. So they're not doing it by everybody just store food and everybody recover. It's like, I know exactly where my food is. Okay? So one wonders then, 
if they're doing this, they're doing it, they must be doing it by memory. So Shuttleworth and Krebs, they had Marsh Tits storing seeds in a lab. Um, in an apiary that had artificial trees, and in this case, trees are four by fours with, with holes drilled in them. And the birds go into the apiary, they take a pine nut and they um, put it in a little hole. Sometimes they make pesto with the pine nuts. No, they don't. They never ever make pesto. And then they recovered the seeds later. They used memory. They, they better recovered their cached seeds than other randomly placed seeds. But Dave, that yep. would be because they're also, they're not necessarily scavengers in the sense that they know to just kind of look around. Oh, right? they, like they, they, they did recover some of those, those randomly placed seeds because they looked around, but they mostly okay. went to ones that they'd only, they put there themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Good, good point. So, so yeah, half the seeds were removed, in fact, um, and they, it wasn't that they were seeing the seeds or not. They even returned to the places where the removed seeds were, okay? So they're using memory. That's the important thing here. So if they're using memory, uh, maybe they're better at memory because of selection. Maybe natural selection has selected for I you just said selection twice. Had selected for having a good memory because you'd be good at food storage, food recovery. And there wasn't a lot of, in general, memory tests, there's clear difference between stores and non stores in the Corvid family. That's the nutcrackers and the crows and the jays. But not so much in the Parrot family. That's the kids uh, and chickens, the mice and chickens, okay? So, I've talked about hippocampal differences to you many, many times. About how food stores have bigger, if you've run into me at all. I just, it's people on the street I tell them these things. I hand out reprints of articles I've written, business cards, and then I tell them about chickens. Um, and food stores have bigger hippocampus than non stores. Okay? So what about, and this is true in parrots too, in the mice and chickens, not just in the corvids, but what about behaviorally? What behaviorally? The data are at best equivocal here, in fact, that, that parrots, that the mice and chickens, are better at food recovery, sorry, are, are better at general memory tests. Okay, so that's kind of upsetting. Maybe it's not how much they remember, but how they remember stuff. So in other words, they're doing it mechanistically in a different way. In fact, probably a more, perhaps, sorry, more, a more efficient way. Okay, so that was the... The idea here is they're doing it qualitatively different, not quantitatively different. So it's not about how much they can remember. It's about how they remember. If, so this is what they're built for then? Essentially, genetically. Yeah, that selection is done. Yeah. So you you were using the example before about how humans, uh, if we remember a deck of cards, it's like a parlor trick. What we're really meant yeah, to be it's, is efficiently remembered. Yeah, and in fact, this is what's going on here too. <coughs> um, so it's not just that it's not I can remember more things than you because I'm a black cat chickadee and you're just a, a great tip and you don't store food. It's because I I do things differently than you. 
because my life depends on this. Food stores don't migrate. They stay around in the winter. You can hear chickens right now out in the wild. Wild being, you know, right there. Like, <laughs> if you just walked outside, you can hear chickadee-dee-dee, chickadee-call, and then you hear some song. The, you know, that's one of the first bird songs you will hear. Um, usually in late mid-January. And that is, that is chickadee song. They're still here. All the other little birds have left. They're hanging around because they store food and recover all winter. They don't get food. If a chickadee doesn't get food, doesn't eat but half an hour after sunup, it dies of starvation. At night, all it has to, all it does is it puffs up its feathers and shivers and tries to stay warm. When it wakes up, it needs something to eat. It has no fat on its body? Hardly any. Most of their fat, if you want to think of it that way, is stored in the environment. It's food. So they don't store fat in a sense like us humans? Not the same, not to the point we eat now. Oh, okay. No. Because they have to fly. Right. So that takes more uh, energy. It's more expensive, I guess. Well, I mean, being fat and being a bird isn't those. It's hard to fly if you're like if you're a pig. If you're a big fat slow guy. Oh God! Penguins. They got a cigarette in their mouth. Oh, oh, boy, I shouldn't eat so much. Why is that? So yeah, they they die if they don't eat in half an hour. So they have to be able to get up in the morning, find some food, or something. They depend, their life depends on us. So the notion was that um, that a, a bright young graduate student had quite a few years ago was that they're remembering things differently, not more or less. Okay? There's a picture of me and Sarah. I'm 27 there, just finished my PhD. And we're both older now. Do I weigh more than than I do now? So the idea is, I was comparing stores and non-stores on what they remembered in different tests. And there's a couple of papers that you want to go read that we can. I'll tell you more about them. We'll talk about the first one, which is Dragon M4. Um, the thing about this paper is that I was comparing what they remembered, not how much they remembered. And I was comparing a food store, Black Cat Chickadee, with a non-store, a Dark Eye Jungle. Okay. Yeah, that would have been in July of uh, 1993. So yeah, it would have just turned 28. So the way this works is that you can see from this diagram, the birds, there's, there's four different feeders, okay? And they're all randomly selected. There's a, there's a pool of about 100 and something of them, <coughs> all painted by my wife. Uh, all kinds of different, and some by me, but mostly by Isabel because it's fun for her. For me, it was work. So, uh, one had a peanut in it, and the bird flies in. That's with the arrow. The bird flies in, eats the peanut. After 30 seconds, he or she, we never knew, uh, would fly back into its home cage. And then for five minutes, they would wait, and then they'd fly back in normally, and all the little holes would be covered up by Velcro. The bird would fly in, it would remove the piece of Velcro, and eat the peanut. And then after they're really good at this, that's when uh, experimenter boy screws with the birds. So I move the whole thing over a little bit, and I switch a couple of feeders around. And now I take a look at where they look. Do they look at the one in the absolute spatial position first, or the one in the same position in the array of feeders first, or the one that's the same color? 
And as you can see on this picture, from the graph on the right, their first choice is to the absolute spatial location. That's uh, this one here. It's the closest place in three-dimensional space to where this one was. The whole thing's been moved over. Then the next place is to the array position. And then the final one is to the color. Then they don't. Then they stop searching. They won't go to the fourth. They literally would sit on a perch in the middle of the aviary and look at the window, looking at me like, "Look, it's not here." So it's what they're remembering. They're remembering the spatial location, and in fact, they remember the spatial location. Um, so this one's explaining the stuff here. So I move stuff around that associate the color and the spatial location. Their last thing is the color. The most important thing for them is space. Dark-eyed juncos, uh, which are not strong bird, don't do that. They would respond equally likely to space or rate of color. They solve the problem differently. Okay, they solve the problem differently. Makes a lot of sense, though, to care about space more than anything else because that line of trees over there is still going to be there. If it snows, something's color might change. But if I'm going to do it in relation to where something is in three-dimensional space, that's what I should do. Let's see, see how that would be selected for. Okay. Questions about that? So we compared, and a lot of us have done these comparisons over the years. Same thing with a computer touchscreen monitor. Uh, they were, birds were rewarded for going to one place or going to a color. Different color. It's basically the same idea except they're pecking at little colored patches on a computer touchscreen. Okay? Back when computer touchscreens were fancy. Back when I had to write the drivers for the damn touchscreens myself. I'm not a computer scientist. Learn. Oh, okay. Ah, grad school. Um, so we switched them around. Same idea. The chickadees relied on space, the spatial location of the patch of color. The juncos didn't. They didn't care. The space or color would ever work. In another experiment, um, chickadees are actually very poor. Well, you just test them on color, and they, have, they can't respond to space. It's like, uh, space isn't going to work right now, just color. They kept, because the idea here is the spatial information kind of overshadowed the color. See, in the world, things don't get flipped around like this. So everything usually points to the same place. The space, the color, the, everything. But in the experiments, it doesn't. So we can test there. We can put these what are called Q competition experiments and test the difference. All right? So, as I said, functionally, this makes a lot of sense. Birds remember where something is, not what color it is. These birds, chickadees. By the way, chickadees can see color. They have the gear in their eyes to see color. They can discriminate colors. They can do this. The thing is, colors change in the, in the environment. That line of trees over there, as I mentioned before, is always going to be there. So remember how far away and in what direction uh, something is from that line of trees. The weird result here, actually, is, is the junco, because space is important for any animal. So why do juncos behave like this in this pattern? 
we tried it even with pigeons, and pigeons, for some reason, in, a, in an operant chamber, somewhat different setup. Weird thing is with this, pigeons even behave like chickadees. But it wasn't in an aviary. It was just in an opera box with three different colored keys. But when you do it in an aviary, this task, and you compare storing and non-storing birds, it always comes out the same way. The stores rely on space, and the non-stores don't seem to care. And this has been replicated a zillion times. Right? In fact, John Krebs calls this the Broadbeck effect, which no one else does, and it never caught on which I think sucks. Because I'd like to, I'd like at some point in my life to go down in history, there's a way to do it, kill a bunch of people, but I don't want to do that. And then I'd become known, by the way, all killers, notorious killers, I would be known forever as David Richard Rodbeck, right? Because he always, Lee Harvey Oswald, David Mark Chapman, they always do that. They always, you know what, they don't want to confuse me with somebody else. Though there's a, a music professor at University of Arizona whose name is David Richard Rodbeck. Are you friends on Facebook? No, no. I tried. I tried. I sent him an email once, jokingly saying, "Put each other's things on our CDs, and no one would know." He didn't reply. It's like it's a joke. I'm kidding. You think I actually? You think anybody believes I'm a world-level expert on Brahms? All right. So that's some stuff on memory, and that's. I know it's not about people. But it, it, it mentioned me a lot, so that's why it's important. Um, let's talk about problem solving. Here's a cool task. It's called the Waysan Selection Task. And I'm going to give you a rule. And the rule is... Those are, think of those as cards. And on one side of the card, there is a letter. And on the other side of the card, there's a number. And I'm going to give you a rule. And your, your task is to tell me if the rule has been broken. And the rule is this. All Fs have a 7 on the other side. You have to turn over only two cards to determine if this rule has been broken. So it's on one side F, on one side 7. Which two cards do you turn over of our ones... I'm pretending these are four cards and not just boxes on them. Uh, anyway. The F and the seven. Who says the F and the seven? I see that's the whole other, yeah. Who says F and the seven? Is this a trick? Um, Who says F and the seven? It's not a trick. It's not a trick. It's not like I'm going to go, is this your card? <laughs> I'm paying teller up here? <laughs> I don't know. Who says it's F and seven? That seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? No, it's wrong. But it seems pretty reasonable. It's not a trick. It's just that it, this is hard. So try again. All Fs have sevens on the other side. Obviously, the F has to be turned over, right? So that's right. What's the other one you have to turn over? The D. All Fs have sevens on the other side. Why would the D matter? Well, because if the D of a se- has a seven on the other side, then like... Did I say that D, that anything about Ds and sevens? No, but... Isn't that a song by Stone Temple Pilots, Ds and sevens? It's threes and sevens. Because Is that who's seven? Yes. No, it was Queen's and Stone Age. If there's a seven on the other side of the D, then there's no rule saying there can't be a D. Right. But you have to flip over the three to make sure there's no F on the other side. Thank you. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard. These are hard tasks. Can you explain that? No, no, no. 
Oh, explain it. Look, if that advice, what if I rule again? D7. Yeah. yeah. So I have to flip over the D to see if there's a 7. Okay. I have no choice. Oh. No, I have to see if there's a 7. I'm sorry, it was an F's and 7's? I missed that. Yeah. So I have to flip over the F to see if there's a 7. Okay, I understand. I have to flip over the 3 to see if there's an F. So you wouldn't flip the 7 because you've already done that? No, who cares? The seven could be, the, on the other side of the 7, there could be a, a picture of Hitler. <laughs> That's, I'm sorry, it got a little dark there. It was a little weird. <laughs> but it could be anything on the other side of the 7. There's no rule about saying that I didn't. I said all F's have sevens. I didn't say pictures of you can't have sevens. I said nothing about that. All I said F's have sevens. sevens but sevens don't have F's. No, sevens have F's. That's, that, that's the rule. So I, I have to flip the F because F must be seven. And then I have to flip the three because remember, on the other side, there has is, is, is there an F? If there's an F, then the rule's been broken. Is this going to be on the test? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it's beyond, you know, no, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to understand. Can be squares, but squares can be rectangles. Same kind of idea. Like, you can't, you can have seven with anything on the back, yeah. but F has to be seven. Oh, yes. Okay. okay. Now, see how long this is taking to understand? Yes. Okay. Here's, let's, let's turn this into a task that humans are good at. It's an all ages show. Who do I t- t- check for ID? I check to see if beer guy is 25. I should see if he's over eight, over 19. I don't care about Coke guy. Who cares if you... I don't care if 25-year-olds drink. Or if there's rum in the Coke. <laughs> <laughs> the 16-year-old, I check what he's drinking. Is it the powder or the drink? Okay. Oh, boy. I only have to check the beer... Drinker, and I have to check the 16 year old. The 25 year old can drink whatever he wants. The Coke drinker could be anybody. Right? Stop. I get it that way, though. So you see how that's easy? It's exactly the same task. I just turned it into a task where humans are detecting social cheating. And suddenly we're good at it. Suddenly it's a trivially easy thing to do. The first one's hard, it's the same task. The second one's easy. I've done some work with this student of mine and I back in Newfoundland had a whole bunch of cases where we thought of things where they were social cheating or not social cheating, and people detect the social cheating trivially. They don't detect non-social cheating either. It's amazing. Isn't that wild? Though makes a lot of sense evolutionarily because it's like we should be able to detect social cheating. We're a social species. We're a social species. We should be able to detect when someone's screwing us around so they don't, we are nice to them again. So that's the mechanism making it easier on the second one? Than the first yeah, one? It's the, we've turned it into something that has a social context. Okay. Right? As long as we make it social, it's for it becomes trivially easy actually. Right? So cheater detection is easy, not, and it's interesting, it's not familiarity with the context. We made up, me and Jennifer Spencer, my old student, we made up a series of these things where we had, and these are undergraduate students of Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. And we found out a whole bunch of things, uh, sort of rules from different religions that people in Newfoundland didn't know about. 
like all of them other than the Christian religion. So, no, seriously, it's a small town in Newfoundland. So we had things about uh, Muslim traditions and, and prohibitions and Jewish ones and Buddhist ones and Hindu ones. Things that people had literally no connection to. They had never experienced these things before. They can detect those no problems. We even made up religions on alien planets in some ways. No problem. People did that. Because of, the of, because of the social context, if it's about detecting cheating, it's not familiarity with the context. Because you might think, oh, well, sure, everyone tries drinking. Well, but I understand what you're saying because they, they were not um, experienced with other cultures. Yeah, they, with those cultures, no. Yeah, exactly. so it's not the context that they're familiar with. It's just the fact that it's... Get a social, social cheating. Okay. Yeah, social cheating. Non-social cheating? Uh, so, something that didn't involve cheating others? It's harder than death. It was as hard as D's and F's and 3's and 7's. I should drop 3's and 7's in, like Queen's of Stone Age, right now into the podcast. Just a little bit. Just a little bit of it. Just enough that I don't get caught for you know copyright violations. Yeah. Three seconds. Yeah. Yeah, three, I think three seconds you can do. So this is actually true with toddlers. Though we didn't do it with toddlers. This wasn't the work we did. This is work that other people have done. It's You can take a three-year-old and have them do a cheater detection, and they're good at it. With the waste on selection task, they are dumbfounded with D's and F's and 3's and 7's. They're flipping all the cards over, they're crying, they're pissing their pants, you know, they're toddlers. But then you say, well, this one here is about cheating on your taxes when you might want to use that. But this one, you know, you get a candy, like a whole, your whole nursery school class gets a candy, something like that, something where it's cheater detection. Oh, suddenly they're good at it. Very cool. There's the example in the book um, has is the big bird problem, and this is it actually comes from Sesame Street, and it's it's a detection, it's it's way it's little kids detecting social cheating by puppets. It's very cool. So just take a look at that. I don't want to go too far into it. Yeah. All right. We suck at probability. <laughs> We're horrible at this. We teach it everywhere because it's an important thing to learn, but we're not very good at it. Why is it hard to learn? It seems odd that it'd be hard to learn. Shouldn't we be good at detecting at doing probability? I mean, what's the likelihood of you getting eaten by a sandwich tiger? What's the likelihood of there being, I know today it's zero, by the way. What's the likelihood of there being food over there? Whatever. We should be good at that. But because of the, we believe in the gambler's fallacy. <coughs> Most people do. The gambler's fallacy is this idea that, oh yeah, well, uh, if you play enough, you're bound to, you're going to be due to win. Oh, you've had five bad hands in a row. You're due another one, or you're due to have a good hand. Actually, not how it works. They're independent events, right? They're independent events. But you know what? There aren't a lot of independent events in nature. Most of nature doesn't involve rolling a die or flipping a coin. Most things are dependent, right? 
the sex of your baby, they're independent. So if you've had a girl, the chance of you having a boy or a girl the next time is 50-50. It's suddenly not 50-50, but it's so close to 50-50. Let's just say it's, it's not even 49-51. It's, it's 49-1⁄2, 50 and a half. Like it's, it's, it's hardly any difference really. Oh. When you enter the adult breeding population, it's 50-50. But the point is we get both what? We mean like a twins? Yeah. That happens. Or one with both parts intersect. That happens. Right? But it's a pretty rare event. And that's less. And it's a rare event. So But what people do, how many people have you heard say things like, oh, they think the sex of a baby is going to depend on the sex of the last day. Well, you've had two girls, next will be. And fifty percent of people say you've had two girls, next will be four. I many times said to people when they're pregnant, you know, I actually can predict the probability of the sex of your baby, and I'm right half the time. And I've literally had people go, really? Boy, that's pretty, no, it's not really that good. It's not good. It's not good! I had an argument once at a dinner party, as I often do, <laughs> because I've been drinking at a dinner party, and someone said, okay, we were talking about this. I was in graduate school, so I was much more full of myself because you're liking that graduate school. I'm excited, just look at me. Um, and I'm around all these musicians, and I like musicians. My brother's a musician. But anyway, I don't want to mention they're musicians, except that they obviously didn't learn about probability. And one of the people said, one of the people that was pregnant, and I said, oh, well, yeah. The person said, well, what's the, what do you think it'll be for a girl? Often kind of question you get asked, right? And then, you know, well, we have a boy, so we're kind of hoping it's a girl to have a boy. I think it should be cool to have both experiences. Blah, 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 that's wonderful. And then someone said, well, you know, the chances. I thought this don't, 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 don't. <laughs> And then you hear, and I forget what it was. I said, yeah, but it doesn't work that way. Like that. They're independent events. And this other person said, I don't think they are. I think they're kind of independent. I said, there's no such thing as a kind of independent event. If you'd like to load me a piece of paper and a pen, I can explain this to you. And this one guy goes, no, let's explore that. I said, we can't just explore things that aren't real. You can't just say, oh, but maybe this is a and it's something different. Okay, so I got a little, this is why I'm no fun, and no one invites me anywhere. And this is also why my wife oftentimes, back then, used to hide underneath tables and stuff while I'd be talking. I'm sorry, I don't know who he is. You know. Did you get the chat before you go? No, no, no. We've been together a very long time. We've been together almost 31 years, so it's... It's more implied. And I'm pretty good. So we're betting... It's funny, when we're given frequency data about things, we're way better at doing what we call intuitive statistics. So in other words, how many of these happen, how many of these happen? So if I say there were 10... If I flipped the coin 20 times and I got 11 heads and 9 tails, nobody says that's a fixed coin. People say that's just random chance. That's going to happen. Well, somebody does, and that person's probably that guy that said, let's explore that. But when I give you relative data, so something like, so if, let's see, let's say 11 and 9, yeah, if it's 55% heads and 45% tails, People aren't nearly as good at that when you use percentages. Do you 
think the gambler's policy has anything to do with self-deception or ability to... Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the gambler's fallacy in some respects is because most events in nature aren't independent. So, in fact, it's, the gambler's fallacy is only true for independent events. It's not true... For dependent events, there is no gambler's fallacy. Right? So, I think it's because in nature, so few things actually are dependent that we have... Sorry, independent, that we've been selected for seeing dependency patterns when they aren't even there. Because most of the time it's good for us. Or at least it was up until recently. Right? So is gambler's fallacy more of cognitive dissonance? Like, specifically in, you know, a gambling uh, environment where, oh, well, I spent this much on a ticket. That means I have to... Oh, I think it takes advantage. I think gambling takes advantage of the fact that people can't do arithmetic. The fact that people can't do independent events. Don't understand it. Um, I don't think it's designed that way. Well, probably is nowadays, but I think I think when it started, it wasn't like that, right? Um, Can it not be associated with justifying risk? How do you mean? Like uh, a lot of the time, we want to justify some of the risk that we take. Oh, sure, that's part of distance, yeah. Right, it's like, yeah, it made sense to do this because maybe I was going to win. It's like the old, you can't win. And in fact, think about this. Think about lottery advertising. You can't win if you don't buy a ticket. Yes, that's true. I'm aware of that. The expected value of the ticket is negative, and that's why the government runs them so they can make money. I tell people on my work that all the time. I don't buy, I don't win, but I never lose. Yeah, and you are bound to lose. Chances are the expected value of a lottery ticket is negative. It must be, or the lottery would be losing money. What are the odds of winning lottery? Depends on the lottery. And let's say <coughs> 649. 649? Uh, 49 times 48 times 1 over. 49 times 48 times 47 times 46 times 45 times 44. Well, no, it's, it's only a buck. If you think of it as, 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 as entertainment, I guess if you find it entertaining, oh, that's, you, that's fine. I get a problem with that. If you think of that as a long-term retirement plan, that's a bad idea. So you have a higher chance of a meteorite coming from... Oh, way higher. Yeah. Than winning the lottery. Oh, hell yeah. Now, someone's going to win. Right? Because they sell millions of tickets. Blah, blah, blah. So what if you do that win two times? <laughs> it's exceedingly unlikely. But it can happen, right? But remember how many people haven't won two times? They <laughs> play lotteries. That's... I hate lottery. With the passion. So, you may have been told there's no sex differences in cognitive things, and it's not true. Now, the thing is, a lot of people say, well, there are real differences... Because we can make them go away. It's interesting. You know, one of the ways you can make if you, you, you can take, take the uh, male uh, uh, superiority on average in spatial tasks, you can make get rid of it temporarily by having women play Call of Duty for two hours. There's data on this. It's a great paper. Seriously, it works because you're doing something exceedingly spatially loaded. Right? So you're practicing your spatial ability. As you may have seen, if you follow me on Facebook the other day, I said, uh, Isabel's kicking my ass at Scrabble. Later, we'll play some spatially loaded task and see how she does on that. So for some reason, this scares people. I don't know why it scares people that there may be sex differences in some cognitive things that are, they're small, there's more overlap. But this up, feel brought this up. There's, there's more variance within each sex than there is between. And those of you who have taken... 3256, if you're using Cohen's D, it's a, it's a point two. It's a small effect. It's like 87% overlap. I guess it, maybe it scares some people because it's the idea of somebody saying, well, there shouldn't be any woman X's. 
or there shouldn't be any man exit. There should be no female fighter pilots, because women aren't good at spatial tasks or aren't aggressive enough. There should be no male kindergarten teachers, because men aren't good at nurturing. No, I'm, what I'm saying is, I think maybe that's what scares people, but when yeah. you understand that it's not about individuals, it's about groups, then it's like, well, that shouldn't surprise me. Yeah, you know. But it's not to say that every person from the, the group is going to follow the average. No, it doesn't say that at all. And there's more overlap, than, way more overlap than you'd expect. Let's put it that way. So there are hormonal effects on spatial abilities. It, yeah, if you give testosterone to someone or some rat, <laughs> uh, they get better at spatial ability. And this, 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 this science has been done. Uh, giving testosterone to women and then having them do a task. That task involves throwing a, uh, and this is one shot, it's just an injection, and they throw a Nerf ball underhanded at uh, a Velcro target. And you think, well, that's still... More men, more little boys have played those kind of games than girls. Not when they've had their weary uh, uh, prisms that shift the world over 45 degrees. It's a hard thing. It's actually not that hard to get good at it pretty quickly. You can do it with your eyes closed. You went on pretty well. Um, and it turns out that if you give somebody testosterone, also women's ability to do this task changes depending upon where they are on the Yeah, because isn't there, this is kind of off track, but... Like, for some of the uh, premenstrual syndrome, there's a little bit more testosterone. Yeah. I read that on Snapchat. You read Snapchat? Uh, yeah. Was like, well, As we know, the, the peer review process of Snapchat is pretty good, too, so. <laughs> no, some of the stuff, like, I, I think I'm like, oh, wow, like, I read Natty G all the time, but. This isn't surprising that the spatial thing would be, be testosterone. surprises in the least because the division of labor in hunter-gatherers typically, typically is men hunting. Women don't do as much hunting. Women do the gathering and the child care for the men are out killing awesome groups of meat. So I don't know if we've talked about this before, huh? but um, is there a relative hippocampal difference between men and women? No. Okay. No. So it's just the processing of spatial memory is a little different. It, yeah, it may be a little different. Okay. Uh, there are data suggesting, for example, that when asked for directions, mm -hmm. men give compass directions yeah, and, and women give landmarks. Women use landmarks. It's a different way to do the same task. Yeah. Men are doing it using compass direction and distance because they think that they're more likely to, this is on average, think that way than women are. In the end, they both take them to the same place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like it's like the difference between the food store and birds and nuts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a qualitative, not a quantitative difference. These differences are small and don't matter in daily life. That's something you have to keep in mind with all this stuff. Right? So they're not something that prevents a member of a sex be able to do something, it wouldn't even prevent a group from doing something, but they're small and statistically significant effects. They don't matter a lot. There's a, here's one. What happens, here's a glass, using a line drawing, of course, because that's what it's always used to serve neurological things. And then, this is the orientation of the glass. What does the water look like? But water in the line looks like that. 
Everybody gets that right. Men, women, chips, chips. Everybody gets it right. Men and women. Now I'd like you to draw the line in now for the water. Oops. Of course, that's correct. 30% of women draw it like this. <laughs> it doesn't matter that that's true, by the way, because there aren't women walking around going, well, if I hold my glass like this, it won't spill. <laughs> it's just a spatial task. It involves spatial orientation of your head. Right? These, by the way, are university, first-year university students. And you can't use... Well, what about, I remember I was explaining this to somebody and someone said, well, what about uh, history that someone has, like women doing something more than men? And I say, you know, I think women do more washing of dishes than men. What if, in fact, they should have more experience? What if they were art majors? <laughs> right. Like if I was gravity, without gravity, it wouldn't be in the thing. It'd just be floating around the amorphous no, there's no, there's no room in gravity. It, it needs the uh, momentum. This just shows that there's a difference there, but who cares? Like, because, like I said, women aren't walking around holding glasses this way, going, "I didn't think it would spill," <laughs> or maybe going, "I didn't think it would spill." That's my woman impression, which is very cool. <laughs> no, it's really not. It really isn't. Um, okay, so some conclusions: cognition's been affected by selection. That, yes, duh. Memory is pretty efficient. Logic is easy if it involves cheater detection. And there are sex differences. They are reliable, but they're small, and they don't affect day-to-day life, but they're interesting scientifically for us. Right? We should be surprised by them, but we shouldn't be feel that one sex or the other should be hampered by it because they want us. I guess we didn't get to learn it today. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, it's fine. And we're pretty good intuitive statisticians if presented with frequency data, but not with relative data. And if we're talking about dependent events, but not independent events. We can be very good at things. We're good at correlations. In fact, we're so good, we see correlations with them. There. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, Often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>